of you please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're actually going to wrap up Hebrews 11 today. Woohoo! If you're just joining us, we've been doing a whole series uh, through Hebrews, and um, Hebrews 11 is known as this thing called the, the Hall of Faith. Uh, just a, a long list of our fathers and mothers who have gone before us demonstrating what it looks like to have this uh, faith in, in God to, to accomplish amazing things in a lot of cases. Uh, Hebrews 11 began with sort of a preface, and you know, the end of chapter 10, it says, the, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, but we are of those who have faith and uh, preserve their souls. So, um, you know, Hebrews 11 is surrounding us with this cloud of witnesses who are preserving their souls. They are continuing in their faith. They're not giving up. They're not letting go of Jesus. They're holding on. And, um, and that's the encouragement that, that we are receiving as well. So if you're able, please stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to uh, begin in verse 32 and just read through the end of Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say for Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead, by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Lord, would you bless the reading and hearing and receiving of your word and perfect us, we pray. Show us more of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, you know, here at the conclusion of, of Hebrews 11, we're told about these saints who, by faith, uh, conquered kingdoms and obtained promises. And then at the same time, we're also told about the saints who, by faith, suffered terribly, right? And did not apparently receive what was promised. Their, their promises were delayed while other saints had their promises obtained. And so we might ask ourselves, well, which is it? What, what should we expect as people, men and women and children, who are by faith holding on to Jesus, believing in his promises, what kind of outcome ought we to expect? Ought we to expect promises to be obtained or promises to be delayed? Are we to expect Faith that's going to help us conquer kingdoms, or are we going to expect faith to lead us into what in some cases might be really, really painful suffering? Both are evident here. Both are clearly on display here in Hebrews 11. So 
Um, let's walk through kind of both of those groups, those who obtained the promises, those who had the promises delayed. And then uh, for all of us, though, I think what we ought to be thinking too is about what does it mean for those promises to be perfected? Uh, what, what is our future orientation as, as we move forward as disciples of Jesus? So, um, all right, so the first group obtained promises, right? Um, beginning in verse 3, what more shall I say? For a time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And, um, and I, I, I just personally, I had get a huge kick out of the author of Hebrews saying, oh, I'm out of time. You know? <laughs> um, he's gotten through, I mean, he's, he's used the phrase, the, the formula, by faith, you know, and then kind of given an illustration of, of these, you know, saints who have been faithful. He's done that 19 times so far. And he, you know, he's looking at his watch. He's going, oh, man, I've been going on for a long time, and I've got to skip to the end. Do you know how comforting that is to me when I have a three-point outline, and I, I finish point one, and I look up, and I've got five minutes left? Okay. So he's just kind of skipping to the end. Uh, oh, yeah, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jeff, and, and like, he doesn't kind of tell us everything about them. He just kind of does this, this survey. And there are remarkable blessings um, and remarkable power on display through these saints as, um, as they hold on to Jesus, as they trust God to deliver them. And these people are the heroes, right? I mean, these are the veterans, right? It's Veterans Weekend. These are the, the heroes and the, and the veterans of the faith, and they've gone before us, and they fought the good fight. Uh, and it might be, might be sort of typical, it might be expected to, to hear me now say, dare to be a David, right? And uh, be like Barak or get you some Gideon, put that on, you know, be like them and imitate them. And, and maybe you've heard messages like that. Uh, but I, did, I can remember listening to a pastor say he did a, he, he was looking for a sermon series to do. He's like, all right, I want to build my people up. I want to encourage them to, you know, do, expect great things from God, do great things for God, something like that. I know, I'll go to Hebrews 11. And so he preached through Hebrews 11 and he gets to this section and he goes, uh-oh. Because everything's sort of not the way it, it, it seems to be. It turns out these veterans, they were a little more complicated than, than maybe at first glance we would expect. They've got some flaws, some inconsistencies. You know, we talked about that with Moses a little bit ago, um, as, as Hebrews 11 was talking about Moses. But let's just walk through this. So you got Gideon, and just like Moses, he's, he, he's questioning God's call. You go back to Judges chapter 6 and 7, and, um, and here's how it goes when God calls Gideon. Gideon says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? God was raising up, um, they were called judges back then, the judges to rescue God's people because they kept getting into trouble. And God calls Gideon to be one of the judges, and he says, I, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Some of you know the whole episode with him putting out the fleece and God, make my fleece dry, make everything else wet. Make my fleece wet, make everything else dry. And God's patient with Gideon. He says, all right, I know your faith is small. I want to grow your faith. I want to show you that I really am calling you, and I really will use my power to deliver your people. Gideon believed him, and his faith did grow. And when God told Gideon, look, I don't need all your fighting men. I don't need your whole army. I just need 300 of these guys. To, to go in to, to the camp of the Midianites, and you guys are going are gonna to be my means to defeat all of the Midianites with just your 300 guys, and you guys don't even, you're not even to take any swords with you into this battle. 
They didn't. They didn't have any swords. And God threw confusion into the camp of the Midianites, and the Midianites killed each other with their own swords. And you know, Gideon and his three hundred men got the you know, the reputation of the victors for that that battle. You get to Barak. Um, he's raised up. Um, actually, Deborah is the judge. Barak is like his her, her general. And uh, and and there's another group, Sisera and his army, and they're coming against Israel. Um, Barak's kind of questioning, I don't know if this is going to work out. And because you question, you know, God's direction, he wasn't going to be, he wasn't get, going to get the glory for conquering Sisera. Somebody else would, uh, a woman named Jael. And if you know about Sisera's nap in her tent and how that went for Jael, you, you, it's a little graphic. We got little ears. <laughs> I'm going to move on. <laughs> but even Barak wasn't consistent in his faith. You get to Samson. I mean, come on. This guy is a train wreck. He's a Nazarite. Uh, he's not supposed to drink any alcohol. He's not supposed to cut his hair. He's got this, you know, super uh, strength that God has given him as long as he keeps his Nazarite vow. And then along comes Delilah, and he doesn't keep his Nazarite vow. And uh, Samson's just a, a mess. But in the end, he knows where to go. And he knows who to believe. And in one final act of deliverance, Samson is, uh, is, is one of Israel's judges. You get to Jephthah. Uh, yeah, sure, he defeats the Ammonites, but he makes this really, really painfully sad and, and, and foolish vow that, that cost him the life of his only child, a daughter. Sure, he delivered Israel. He was a judge, but... Very, very flawed, flawed person. I don't have to tell you about all the inconsistencies in David's life. Most of you probably know those. Actually, when it turns, it turns out Samuel's the only sort of like consistently uh, holy person in the whole list. And you get God using, you know, <laughs> these flawed examples to show us what faith looks like. Uh, and God seems to do this a lot, where he puts his glory into these, these cracked, flawed uh, vessels. Why does he do that? Why does he keep drawing straight lines with, with crooked sticks? There's no perfect Christian, right? Like, all of us have tilted halos at best, as Brendan Manning used to put it. Every single Christian has their cheese falling off their cracker. Like, none of us does it right all the time. We've all got sins to repent of. We've all got faith, yes, but we've all, all also got, you know, doubt too, unbelief as well as belief. And why does God use us? Why does the king of the universe want to use flawed and consistent people to accomplish his purposes? Well, I mean, I guess the first, an the first answer is obvious. Um, if he didn't use us, then um, he would never... He would never be in partnership with his people, right? If, if, he, if he was not content to use flawed vessels, cracked pots, as you and I are, then he would never be in partnership with us. This would all be his thing, and we'd just all be spectators. But instead, he actually enjoys enlisting us and calling us alongside our Father in heaven to kind of hold the tool and try to, you know, saw the board or whatever like, like we do with our little ones? Are they, are they actually making the end result happen? Not so much. They're helping out, yes, but in some cases we, we can make it a little more complicated than, than, uh, than, than helpful. 
Nonetheless, God's using all of these cracked vessels to conquer kingdoms, to enforce justice, to obtain promises, to stop the mouths of lions, to escape the edge of the sword, to be made strong out of weakness, to become mighty in war, to put foreign armies in flight, and to receive back the, the dead by resurrection. And God does this because he seems to like it. He, he likes using broken vessels. It pleases him. Like, you're, you're, you're not the sharpest tool in the shed. None of us are. All, all of us are pretty messed up tools when it comes. This is my tool bag, and, and I've, got, I've got an adjustable pliers, you know, to, and you can move it into a different channel to, you know, if the nut, depending on the size of the nut, but it keeps slipping out of its channel. Like, these are, these are great, but they, they don't ply too well too often. I got a saw. Now, it's dull. It's, you know, can kind of cut through something, but not much. Um, my, my scraper. You know, it's a dull razor blade. I need to replace it, but I just haven't gotten around to it. My scissors, uh, these are these cut through everything, but they're super dull, and I have to like really work at it. And this is us. Like none of us is a perfect tool. N none of us is the sharpest tool. All of us have these dull edges and inconsistencies and places where we're not going to do it right. But good news, God's just happy. To, in, to involve us. It makes him happy. Our Father in heaven is happy to have us participating in his plan to advance his kingdom and to build his church, and he uses us. And, and that is the second reason why he uses us is because it means he gets the glory for it. He's the one who is accomplishing these things. He got the glory at Jericho. Hey, everybody, I want you to march around the city a bunch of times, and then at the end, blow your trumpets, and that's why the walls come down. Not because they brought out Grand and, you know, hit the battering ram against the wall, but because what God did. And then, you know, you look at Midian and Gideon and, you know, he reduces the army down to 300 people. They're not supposed to take any swords. What does each soldier have? They have a torch and a pot. And the plan is, here, here's this, you know, here, here's their, their um, war methodology. Here's their battle plan. Take your torch, and then everybody, you're going to you know, smash your pot and yell, and that's what throws the Midianites into a panic. And they've heard about Gideon, and they're, they're scared, and then they turn on each other, and that's how the Lord gets glory, through a, a, a bunch of people carrying torches in a pot, through a bunch of people circling Jericho and then blasting their, their, their trumpets. It's not the world's warfare. That, that's not the way that you know, the, the kingdoms of this world go to battle. And, uh, and Paul kind of comes to grips with this when he's talking to the Corinthians and saying, look, um, I want you to understand how the kingdom of God works. Here's, here's the economy of God's kingdom. God doesn't play by the world's rules. He doesn't value, you know, and this goes all the way back to when Samuel is looking for the next king. Like, like God's not judging on the basis of external appearance and how tall a man is and how strong a man is. He's looking at the heart. And this is what Paul says to the Corinthians. Look, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
God loves to use his means, otherworldly means, to get victory. And this is instructive for us. As we go to battle, as we face opponents, when we face conflict, right? Every single one of us came into this room this morning. You've come out of a week of conflict of some, some sort. I don't know how intense it was, and I don't know, you know who it was with, but all of us are engaged in, in relational conflicts or familial conflicts, marital conflicts, or occupational conflicts, or political conflicts, or whatever the case may be, right? Conflict's just what we do, unless you live in a bubble where every single person around you agrees with you 100%. If you live in that bubble, let me know, because I'm going to pop it. <laughs> I'm going to disagree with you. <laughs> So what do we do when we disagree? What, what do we do when, when, when we have conflict, when we kind of, in, in a sense, go to war? If we use the world's strategies and the world's weapons in our conflict, should, should we expect anything besides a worldly result? Probably not. We can only expect, you know, we'll get what we deserve in that case. We can only expect, you know, what the world's going to accomplish in the way that it does conflict. So, for instance, should we deal with our opponents? Should we engage the opposition with, with anger um, and, and arrogance and aggression? Is that, is that the way that God's calling us to engage with our enemies? You, you might win the battle. You might win the argument. You might prevail on that conflict, but we lose the war. We lose the big picture. We lose the kingdom of God. On the other hand, if we fight with love and kindness and respect and grace and truth... There's a chance you and I get steamrolled. Literally, I mean, it just run us over. We lose the battle. But we win the war. You, you win. You, you let people see the kingdom of God. You let people see love and joy and peace and patience on display. That's what this world needs. That's what the world doesn't see in our conflict. All it sees is how, you know, people bicker and fight and turn against each other. It's us and them. And instead, what God's calling us to is engaging according to the kingdom. And, you know, and, and does it take faith? Like, which, which of those strategies requires faith is a good way to put it. And if you're kind of going toe-to-toe to somebody, where are we exercising dependence on Jesus even though, you know, I'm in opposition with this person at work, in my family, you know, school, whatever, on the team? Um, you know what I mean? Like, where are we? Which of those options, which of those strategies requires us to trust Jesus instead of trusting in ourselves? Just something to think about, all right? 
Look, um, by faith, all of these you know, folks that we've been looking at were, were conquering kingdoms and, and escaping the, the, the sword and escaping the flames and doing these incredible things and miracles are happening, right? But, but what happens when God doesn't deliver those who trust in him? There, there are people who obtain the promises and there's other people here represented that those promises seem like, well, we're going to defer that for now. We're going to delay that. You, you've got some who are conquering by faith, and then you've got some who are suffering by faith. Hebrews takes this really, I don't know if you picked up on it, really sober and sudden turn in the middle of verse 35. Look, look there again, where it's just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. And Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. They went about in skins and were mistreated and afflicted, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Um, you know, we, we don't have time right, to go into it. But these are stories that echo the lives of the prophets like Jeremiah and Zechariah. Um, there's some legend, maybe it's Isaiah who was the one referred to as sawn in two. You can turn to Acts chapter 12 and read about how at that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. One of the apostles... Sometimes we suffer by faith. It's not all conquering. Sometimes God does extraordinary things through his saints, and sometimes God calls his saints to suffer extraordinary hardships. And we've got to trust God to fight for us in the, in the, in the battles that we're too weak to win, and we need to trust God to sustain us in the trials that we're, we're just we're too weak to endure. Um, if you were with us last month, uh, we had this prayer meeting called The Gathering. A bunch of churches in the area, uh, we do this every year just to pray for the persecuted church, for the suffering church. And Andrew Brunson was the, uh, the guest speaker, um, kind of shared with us about the state of the persecuted church, the state of the suffering church. Uh, if you know Andrew's story at all, he was pastoring in Turkey for decades, I think, maybe 20 years or something, and he got arrested on these trumped-up espionage charges, the government, which, you know, Turkey is formerly an Islamic nation. And, uh, and so he's in a Turkish prison, not just any prison, but a notorious uh, Turkish prison. And, uh, and when he's sharing with us, he, he, he said just very, very bluntly, and it was really kind of startling to hear him say, grace is not an anesthetic. God's grace to us is not a painkiller. It doesn't exempt us from suffering. But it will get us through suffering. And what I appreciated so much was, um, was Andrew's just vulnerability and his transparency when he was talking about that ordeal two years in a Turkish prison. How before he was arrested, he sort of, you know, he just confessed he had a chip on his shoulder. 
he, he, he sort of had this thought that, well, you know, if I have to suffer persecution, if I have to suffer that way, um, I can handle it. Kind of, in a sense, like bring it. And then he shared, you know, I got, in, I got into prison and prison broke me. God broke me of his pride, thinking that, that he possessed the strength and the resolve and the courage that it would take to survive and, and to endure prison. He did not. God gave it to him. It was a gift to him. By faith, by grace, he was given the patient endurance, the ability to endure. And, and I, I don't know if you've ever had this thought. Like, what happens if, if we have to suffer like that? What if, what if I have to suffer like that? Am I going to have the courage to go through that? Am I going to have the endurance to go through that? I've wondered that. And then, honestly, I, the Holy Spirit does remind me, I, no, you don't, Essen. No, none of us do. It's not from ourselves. It comes from the Holy Spirit. If we're in that circumstance, if any of us have to face that kind, that degree of suffering, the Holy Spirit will give us the patience and the endurance that we will need. And some of you, you know, know firsthand, maybe it's not a prison, right? But you, you know suffering. And, and you were at the end of your rope years ago. But God in his grace blessed you with endurance, something supernatural beyond your ability. That's, that's how the Holy Spirit works, you know. Um, <laughs> Andrew shared how they let his mom come and visit him in, in prison. And he was so relieved, so like light broke through to hear a, to have his mom come and visit, but then hear his mom tell him about all the people who've been praying all over the world, you know, petitioning for his release. And then, and then he kind of like went from, wow, that's really good news to, oh, that's hard to hear when his mom said, you know, Andrew, it's your turn to stand in the long line of people who have suffered for the gospel. It's just your turn. And you have to keep standing by faith. And Andrew said, that's not what I wanted to hear, but it's what I needed to hear. Because A, it meant that he needed to keep looking to Jesus, keep trusting in Jesus. He didn't know how long he was going to stay. Thankfully, it was only you know, two years, but still two years. That's a long time. And he realized he's not at the end of the line. It's his turn to stand in the line, but there's saints who are going to have to come and stand after him. And he wanted to live the kind of life that, that those saints who would come after him would go, Andrew did it, I can do it too. Andrew believed and trusted that Jesus was enough. I need to believe and trust that Jesus is enough too. God calls all of us to suffer by faith. All of us suffer. That's, that's the consistent common human denominator. We suffer. And God is calling us to trust Jesus as we suffer. And then some Christians suffer because of their faith. And we need to pray for them.
you know, um, it's not uncommon for some people to say that, well, if you're suffering, maybe, you know, God's, you know, God's trying to teach you a lesson. He's, 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 he's you know, you did something bad, <laughs> and so you're being punished uh, for your sin, right? And I'm not here to say that that's not sometimes the case when you do something that you know is wrong and you make a bad choice and you suffer the consequences for it. You know, okay, you get it. But look, let's not be so naive as to suggest that every time a Christian is suffering, somehow that means God's removed his grace from you or that you've done something bad and God's just kind of getting his pound of flesh from you. Can you align that way of thinking with what Hebrews earlier taught us in chapter 2 where it was fitting that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I should say God did this. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. If we're suffering because of some sin that we did, then how in the world can Hebrews say that Jesus suffered? He never sinned. And yet God is perfecting his ministry. He's completing Jesus' commission through suffering. What is, that, what is that about? What is happening here? Well, God showed us the perfection of his love and the perfection of his justice through the suffering of Jesus. When Jesus is on the cross, God is loving us enough to suffer for us, to suffer our punishment in our place. He's not punishing us through suffering. He's suffering to remove punishment from us. And he does that to uphold his justice at the same time. The cross shows us the perfection of God's love, the perfection of his justice uh, in, in such clear terms. And, and so, you know, when you come back to this whole idea of, of Christians and people who are being persecuted, Persecutors are, are like almost proudly ridding the world of, of the people who are unfit to live, right? They, they don't think that these people who believe these things and practice these things, they're the undesirables, we need to get rid of them. Uh, and Hebrews is saying that, that the opposite is true, uh, that God desires his people, loves his people, even though they're suffering persecution, even some of them who are being killed, and he loves them and so much so that the world is not worthy of them. Did you catch that little parenthetical thing? The world's not worthy of these people. And as we look at that, and as we think about this very you know, high call to, 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 by faith, be willing to endure suffering so that Jesus might get glory in our broken bodies, broken vessels, I think it's good to ask the question, how can you and I become the kind of people for whom the world is not worthy? How do we show the world that there's something worth more than the world? Well, it's not because of our worth, obviously. It's, it's the worth of Jesus that we're, we're putting on display. And we want to be the kind of people that show and, and tell the world through our actions and through our, our words that Jesus is worth more than our piles of stuff. Uh, Jesus is worth more than our um, addictions to comfort. You know, I'm one of them. Uh, Jesus is worth more than our constitutional rights. 
Uh, Jesus is worth more than our lives. Jesus is worth more than the world, right? I mean, in every aspect of our lives, if there's anything that we think is worth more to us than what Jesus offers us in his his entire being, then, then we've got our economics really off kilter. And we show the world what the kingdom of God is worth when we, when we get that back into uh, to calibration. And the other way that we show the world that Jesus is worth more than the world is when we pray for the people who are persecuted, right? We want to be different. We, we want to be not of this world, but, but of another world, of God's kingdom. And, of course, you know, the world is, is only going to grieve for the victims that uh, align with its side, you know, its argument or whatever. And so when we pray for the persecuted, certainly we want to be praying and advocating for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering and who are being killed and so on, who are going through hardship. But why would we stop there? Right? Shouldn't we be advocating and praying for every person who suffers, every person who is persecuted, no matter, you know, what their belief or what their identity is? Doesn't God say that he defends the cause of the orphan and the widow and the alien and the stranger? Those who share a nationality and those who have a different nationality? Those who, can def- who can't defend themselves, those who can't speak up for themselves? God says, I'm going to be their advocate, and I want my people to be their advocate. And this is the way you and I stand out from the world. The world draws the line between us and them. And we say, no, the world, you know, God wants all nations to come to him and all peoples to come to him. And he grieves over suffering and injustice suffered by any single person who is his image bearer. And that's how we can show the world this this world is not worthy. Well, there are promises that are obtained, certainly, there are tremendous victories that we've seen you know, in God's people, and there are tremendous hardships that people who uh, follow Jesus have suffered. And those promises seem to be delayed in their cases. And so there's this future orientation, too, that we want to keep in mind in verse 39. It says that these who were commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So, so Hebrews is saying some saints obtained the promises, and yet others you know, were, were delayed in that. And so there's a future orientation. And we have a future orientation as well. Really, the whole book of Hebrews is making this argument that all of the saints who went before us, before Jesus, have these promises that were put before them, and those promises were types and, and pictures uh, images, shadows of what was to come, the fullness of the promise. And, and the book purpose of Hebrews is to tell God's people, don't go back to those forms. You have the substance. Uh, don't go back to this sense of the promised rest um, or the promised salvation or the promised descendants or the promised inheritance because you have the substance of those promises. Uh, verse chapter 4 said, hey, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, um, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. What's the fullness of that promise of rest? It's found in Christ. 
Even though, you know, all the Old Testament saints were thinking of that rest in terms of a, of a land and a place and, a, you know, this, this journey that they were on, no, the, the fullness of that rest is in Christ. The promised salvation of chapter 6, that we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation and be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So we've got all these promises of salvation in the Old Testament. Basically, a lot of it had to do with the sacrificial system, the forgiveness of sins that would come through the shedding of blood. Don't go back to those sacrifices. You've got Jesus, the final full salvation that is ours in him. There was the promise of, uh, of descendants, right? Remember Abraham and God promised uh, that he will have a son and thus Abraham, having patiently waited in Hebrews chapter 6, obtained the promise. So you kind of get this place where, okay, Abraham obtained the promise, and there were others who were conquering kingdoms and obtaining promises by faith. But in verse 39, look, look what it says. Though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. And so we kind of were left going, well, which is it? Did they receive the promise or not? And the answer is, well, yeah, to both. They received a type, you know, the, the, the shadow of the promise, but they were waiting on Jesus. And we, who now have Jesus, are still, in a sense, waiting, aren't we? Because he came to serve and to save, and now he's going to come again to rule, to judge, and to establish his kingdom, and to give us the inheritance, the promised eternal inheritance of Hebrews chapter 9. And all of this is found and fulfilled in Jesus. He's the perfection of this promise. Chapter 11, verse 40, ends by telling us, God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And you kind of go, what does that mean? What does it mean that they should be made, that, that God's waiting to make them perfect, waiting for us? Why is he making them wait? Are we perfected too? Like, what, what is the end of chapter 11 telling us? Well, the truth is we don't have we don't have all the information yet. You have to actually kind of go into chapter 12, and we'll look at this next week. But doesn't verse 2 of chapter 12 say that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith? He's the one that makes it perfect. He's the perfecter of our, of our faith. By faith, we, we look to Jesus, and he perfects all those promises. He's the, he's the promised rest. He's the He's the promised land. He's the promised sacrifice. He's the promised son. He's the promised reward. Don't go looking to anything else as the fullness of those promises. Look to Jesus. And they didn't receive the fullness of the promises because they were still before Jesus. And those who lived with Jesus and those of us who lived after Jesus, Hebrews is telling us, don't look away from him. You have the one who's perfected these promises. And by faith, there's going to be victories that you'll experience. And by faith, there's going to be suffering you're, you're going to experience. But don't give up. He's coming again to perfect the world. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for these promises. We're grateful for the testimony of our fathers and mothers who have gone before us, who by faith conquered kingdoms and escaped the sword. And also those who by faith died by the sword. And it would seem to us maybe missed out on the promises, but they didn't. 
Because all of them had Jesus, and all of us have Jesus who trust in him and who look to him. And so I pray for any here who, who still have yet to, to look to him. Lord, help them put their faith in you. Help them long for a, a world that's so much better than this world. And help us all to, to fight a, a battle according to your world and not this world. Uh, Lord, and may your kingdom come, and may your will be done accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.